The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked along a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in a boat, mending their nets. Then he called them. So they left their father Zebedee in the boat, along with the hired men, and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't grabbed your calendar, you've heard 2021, yeah, there's still more in the back there. It helps follow our liturgical cycle. As you know, in a, few couple, a couple more weeks now, we're entering into one of, the, one of my favorite liturgical seasons, the Holy Season of Lent. It's only a few weeks away, so as we get there, start to prepare yourself mentally and ask yourself, what are you going to do to be miserable for God? <laughs> Remember, Lent should be painful. Remember, if, you're not, if, you're, if Lent's not hard, you're doing it wrong. It's like going to the gym. If you don't sweat after a day in the gym, you're doing the gym thing wrong. Lent should be hard. You should be complaining. And so, what are you going to do for Lent? Remember, three aspects of Lent. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. In other words, we increase our prayer. We give more to charity. And we, we starve ourselves. Okay? We fast. So those three areas. Start to think about ways of doing it. And make this Lent a holy one. So by the time you get out of Lent, you'll just be levitating and floating. You'll be so holy. So, get yourself ready. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. You ever been to the coronation of a king or a queen before? Are you that important? Is anybody here that important? Were you invited to, were you there when Queen Elizabeth was anointed as as king, a queen of England? Probably not. I don't know, unless you guys are. But it's an amazing thing. If you're ever to attend, if you watch television on TV... The anointing of a queen or a king. It should look very familiar. Because they'll, they'll take oil, and whoever the monarch, future monarch is, they'll dump oil on their head. Or if you were to go to France, if, back in the Middle Ages, if you go to the cathedral in Rouen, that's where the ancient monarchs of France, where they were anointed. In a mass. The, the archbishop would come and, and anoint the, the future king of France there. You can still see their tombs if you go to Rion today. That's where the kings and queens are, are, are buried there of France. And they're right, they pour oil on their heads there. Why? 
And if you were watching, and if you were so important, if you were able to go to attend one, it should remind you of your baptism. Because notice now, remember, recall, when if a child was baptized, or when you were baptized, they took the baby, the baby's in there, of course, you're holding the baby, and after the baptism is poured, or the water's poured over their heads, then the priest takes the chrism oil, and we anoint the crown of your head. Hear the language. Crown. Because when we anoint your head, what happens is, is that we become part of a new kingdom. Every single one of us. And we see this beautifully now. Notice this. In this strange encounter, when all of a sudden Jesus appears, and he says this startling phrase. It's almost like last Sunday. This phrase is jam-packed with meaning. So powerful is this phrase that Simon, the future Pope, Peter, is their brother Andrew, James, and John, the first of the four apostles, the first four of the, will eventually become the twelve. All he had to do was say one, this one phrase, and immediately they dropped everything and began to follow Jesus. This is the time of fulfillment, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, again, to penetrate these words, we must first understand them how they did in the first century. In the first century, every pious Jew would have understood this phrase. Because immediately when they began to, as Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, every pious Jew would have immediately connected Daniel chapter 2. If you go to the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 2, the prophet lays out a certain timeline. He says, in the future, God will come. He will send the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is simply the transliteration of the word Meshayach in Hebrew, which means the anointed one. So God will send this Messiah into the world, and this Messiah will establish a new kingdom. A kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom which will not be established by men, but rather by God himself. He will build this new kingdom, and no enemy will ever be able to conquer it. It will last forever. And so that's what Prophet Daniel is prophesying. And how will we know when this kingdom will come? He actually gives... The timeline for it. Preceding the establishment of this new kingdom, there will be four prior kingdoms. And so all of the Jews in the first century have already calculated it. Because the timeline was, the first empire, the first kingdom, would be the kingdom of Babylon. Which was a powerful, powerful empire. The Babylonians were then conquered and followed by the Persian Empire. And then, of course, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks. Probably one of the greatest military minds we've ever seen, Alexander the Great. They say by the time he was 35, he had conquered the known world. 35. You know what some 35-year-olds are still doing now? <laughs> Playing video games. <laughs> Alexander the Great conquered the world. So the Greek Empire now followed. Babylon, 
Persians, the Greeks, and then the fourth empire, the fourth kingdom. In the first century, who was the biggest and toughest empire on the scene? Rome. Rome was in power there. And so Rome now was under, they were pressuring the Jewish people in Israel there. They were the new power. And so every Jew knew, reading the prophet Daniel 2, they said, ah, we're in, the, we're in the age of the fourth kingdom. And so every Jew was waiting. Babylon, Persia, Greeks, Rome. That is all in the background now. All of a sudden, Jesus arrives on the scene. What does he say? The time of fulfillment has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see what he just did here? He says, the one you've been waiting for, prophesied by Daniel centuries before me, it has come. The kingdom has arrived. And that is why they they, they dropped everything immediately. Simon, Andrew, they leave their family behind. It says here, even says James and John, they, they literally left their father in the boat. They're in the middle of their work day. And then Jesus comes, the kingdom has arrived. Oh, the kingdom's here. Boom, let's go. And that is why eventually the four would eventually run out to 12. And everybody understood the 12. Jesus is building his kingdom now. But what begins to happen here? As he builds the kingdom, we begin to see that this kingdom is different than all the other kingdoms prior. Because what do you think of when you think of kings and monarchs? What are the qualities of a king and a monarch? Or in other words, what are the benefits of being your own king and queen? Power, wealth, palaces, mighty armies. Very worldly idea. And in many ways, are we all trying to build our own little kingdoms? Every single one of us, we're all trying to build our own little kingdoms. We all want to be our own, we all want our own castles. And so that's the idea that the early apostles had. Ah, but the kingdom of Jesus that he comes to establish is different. But the disciples have a hard time understanding this. I want to read for you, this is Mark 10, 35. James and John, notice this encounter. And look how worldly they are. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus responds, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. You see what they just did here, James and John. But at this point, when this, this, this Mark 10 happens, the 12 have, have already gathered. And then what do we all do? What are we always famous for? We try to jockey for position. We try to maneuver. We try to get an advantage, don't we? And so what James and John try to do, they, 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 behind everyone's back, they go to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we want to sit one on your right, one at your left. In other words, in your, in your powerful kingdom, we want to be right below you. So we want to be powerful, more powerful than the others. We're trying to get a high position. Scheming like rats behind people's backs. And then Jesus says, 
I can imagine his face nodding his head. This is what he says. You don't know what you are asking. When the, turn, when the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John because they understood that they were trying to take advantage of Jesus. And then Jesus sits in them as, as this lesson opportunity arises. He says to them, The rulers of this world make their power and position felt over them. But not so among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. Do you see what he just did here? He says, I, have come, I am the Messiah. I have come to build my kingdom. But my kingdom will not be like the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, or the Babylonians. It will not be rooted in power or prestige. I'm trying to teach you now to flip the idea of power and prestige and honor on its head. That is why the next line when Jesus preaches, he says to them, the kingdom of God is at hand. What was the next line? Repent, doesn't he? That beautiful word, repent, in Greek is metanoiate. Metanoiate, he says to them. In other words, change your life. Change everything how you view the world. Because we need to hear this message today because what is, what is our idea of, of our own kingdom? It is my will that reigns. It is my will. Forget what God says. I'll do whatever I want to do. That's our notion of what it means to be happy. Again, ask anybody on the street. Freedom. We hear radical freedom to do whatever I want. But Jesus says, ah, no, not among us Christians. See, the beauty of the Christian life now is to humble ourselves and our desires and our wills and our whims. And to say, Jesus, now you are my king. I repent of my sins. And you now rule my life. See, that is one of the hardest things following this God of ours. Because we are called to deny ourselves. And we get this beautiful clue. You know what the word Israel means? And I love this because I know this is not easy following God's will. I know it's not. Israel, that word means one who wrestles with God. Doesn't that feel like the Christian life to you? Wrestle with God. Because if you, follow, if you try following the Ten Commandments, it's like wrestling with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall have no gods above you. Keep holy the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. That shall not steal. That shall not covet. That shall not... You go through the entire commandments. We wrestle with that. And so Jesus is trying to instill in us to flip our idea, what our world tells us as power, prestige, and wealth on its head. And it's hard. Have you ever wondered why Judas betrayed our Lord. Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. Why? I'm sure Judas loved Jesus. I'm sure he strived to follow him. In that. I'm sure Judas left everything behind. Just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, like the other apostles. They all left everything behind. Judas did too in the beginning. But what happened? 
he still had the idea of God's kingdom as a worldly kingdom. He was waiting for the power and the prestige and the wealth. But when that didn't happen, and what begins to happen in our hearts, we begin to grow hard, indignant, resentful. And when we do that, Judas tried to maneuver, didn't he? He tried to say, all right, Jesus, you're not doing what I want to do. I want the kingdom. I want the power and the prestige that you promised me. And so I will do it myself. And what does Judas do? We all know the story. On the night, a couple of days before the Last Supper, he goes to the Jewish high priests. And in that beautiful, not beautiful, in a sense, tragic encounter, he tells the high priest, what will you give me if I gave up Jesus? And how much was Jesus worth to Judas? A measly 30 pieces of silver. You see what he did there? Judas could not let go of his idea of happiness and joy. He was still, he was still rooted in the world. And that is why Paul, beautifully in the second reading, or in Romans, says the kingdom of God is not like it's not eating and drinking, but righteousness. And then later on now, Paul writing to the, we have in our second reading here. He said, I tell you, brothers and sisters, time is running out. For the world in its present form is passing away. You know, as I said before, all of us here, we all hit the lottery. You know that, right? The fact that we live here in the United States. We all hit the lottery. We are blessed to live here. The most prosperous, the most powerful nation has ever existed on earth. The opportunities that we have here are, are, are limitless. And I hope our nation lasts for another thousand years. But all of this will crumble. All of this will eventually. And so what our Lord is trying to teach us here, that to, to build a true kingdom rooted in him now, because everything else is passing away, and the hardest part is to let ourselves go and say, Jesus, I will follow you, and whatever that means, even if that means denying myself and all of my ways that I, I, that I want, but rather, Jesus, you are my king, and I follow you. Do you see now why the Christian life, when lived to its fullest, is always hard? That's why this reduction of Christianity to merely being nice is not worth shedding one's blood for it. People always say, oh, Christianity is all about being nice. No, it's not. Point that out in the Bible for me. Tell those martyrs who, who died for the faith. Did they die just to be nice? You see the reduction of Christianity, how, how superficial that is? No. Rather, the path and the glory of Christianity now is to allow Christ to, to rule in my life to submit myself to his will. And when we understand that mystery, we begin to realize now what it means when that priest, when you were baptized, poured over oil over your head, over your crown, 
Because the moment he did that to me and to you, we became part of this kingdom. And that is why after Mass, for the next, I want to invite you for the next week or two, when you see each other out in the streets, when we talk to each other, call each other your highness. <laughs> you chuckle, you laugh, but it's true. You and I are royalty. You and I are more powerful. We have more wealth, more power, more prestige than the Roman emperor himself. We are richer than Queen Elizabeth. Do you know that? Do you realize our patrimony that we have as baptized Christians? My friends, we are part of this kingdom. And this kingdom has already begun. The kingdom, the beginning, and its fulfillment is the church. Built upon the twelve apostles. There by the successors of the bishops. That's why, my brothers and sisters, we are part of this kingdom. Every single baptized Christian, all two billion of us, we are royalty. And that is why we are the richest people on earth. So, your highnesses, the homily is done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.